Welcome, foolish mortals, to GGDN, a companion podcast to my blog, Gay Goth Dungeon Master. I'm your host, Non Serwian. Well, hello, listeners, if any. It is I, your host and non-binary fairy, Non-Serwiem, and welcome to the first episode of my uh, reimagined podcast, GGDM. And today we are going to be talking about examples of play in tabletop role-playing games, uh, especially Dungeons & Dragons. So, if you have ever read the rules to any tabletop role-playing game, especially Dungeons & Dragons, you will have come across these things. They are almost always given as some sort of a script where dialogue, a conversation between uh, whatever the game refers to as the game master uh, and the players, uh, it basically creates a little scene that you can read. Uh, so that you can get a glimpse of play in action. And uh, a lot of people find them pretty cringe. And yet, they're also pretty necessary, especially the first one ever published. Uh, The example of play included in the original edition of Dungeons & Dragons. And that is the one we are going to be talking about today. So to uh, make things nice and explicit, my goal here is to do a series of episodes on the examples of play given in as many editions of Dungeons & Dragons as I can get my hands on in order to read through them and discuss uh, what they imply about the tone of that game, about its uh, its style, the style of play that uh, the rule set implies, um, what the game designers expect you to be doing at the table. Um, I'm going to stick to official versions of Dungeons & Dragons initially, if, uh, if this becomes a fun thing to do or a popular thing to do. I may add future series, uh, looking at ones for retro clones. Um, I may do ones from Pathfinder. I may even do other games that are not remotely related to, uh, Dungeons and Dragons. Um, because I, I think however embarrassingly bad these, uh, examples of play are, and they're not all embarrassingly bad, they do tell you what the game designers think is going to happen at a typical table. And because uh, the longer Dungeons and Dragons exists, and it's over 40 years old now, in fact, I think it's going to be pushing 50 years old soon, you know, it's the, the play styles and the attitudes um, to, I mean, to, the split between role-playing and combat to uh, how how challenging combat is to what sorts of other non-combat challenges are in the game to how evocative the descriptions 
are are meant to be these things have all changed drastically throughout uh, the game's history and they continue to change to this day um, but we can always get a glimpse at what the uh, the implied style and tone is by having a quick look at these examples of play and they're not very long so let's get into the first one right now so before we get into the actual example of play first a little bit of history uh the game dungeons and dragons was first published in 1974 by a company called well originally called tactical studies rules they eventually changed their name to tsr hobbies um, and the example of play, written by n none other than Gary Gygax himself, um, the man most directly responsible with, for creating the rules of Dungeons & Dragons, was entirely necessary because not only was this the first ever version of Dungeons & Dragons, this was the first role-playing game of any kind. It was an entirely new type of game, an entirely new type of of activity and experience and one that nobody could really draw on any previous experience in order to understand um originally dungeons and dragons was born in the uh the home of dave arneson with his local gaming group and they brought it down from uh minnesota to lake geneva wisconsin and demoed it for gary gygax and then Gary Gygax promptly started up his own home group. Um, and anybody local to that region could pop around and observe a game or even roll up a character and join a game and figure it out. But when TSR went to uh, distribute this, you know, hopefully nationally, they realized that people who had never played anything like this were going to get their hands on these rules and they were going to need to know what they're supposed to do because it's not like playing a board game it's not like playing a miniature war game um it's not like anything else i mean now role-playing games are so famous that all you have to do is just look on youtube and you'll see any number of people recording their uh their home games or you could watch critical role or something like that or my personal favorite acquisitions incorporated but you couldn't do any of those things in 1974. So, in addition to writing out the rules and attempting to explain in prose what you're supposed to do, he concocted a little scene that you could drop in on and observe a group playing this game as if you were witnessing it. So, the uh, example of play comes in the third of the three booklets which contained the rules for the original edition of Dungeons and Dragons. The booklet was called Underworld and Wilderness and it had rules intended for what we now call the DM to run the game, to create content for the game, uh, etc. The table of contents for this booklet does not list the example of play. Um, but it does come on page 12, at the bottom of page 12. It is titled, Example of the Referee Moderating a Dungeon Expedition. And referee is the original word used for the 
what we now call the Dungeon Master, and it will be used throughout this example of play. So before we get to the dialogue proper, we have this uh, introductory paragraph. The players, equipped and ready, are assumed to have located a set of stairs descending to the first level beneath the ground. The referee's part will be indicated by R-E-F, that of the caller for the players being shown as C-A-L. Uh, if you have never heard of the caller, um, almost every edition of Dungeons & Dragons up to, I think, 2nd edition AD&D included roles that the party, the, the players were meant to take at the table, one of which was the caller. So what you did was the DM didn't ask each player individually what they were going to do. They asked what the party was going to do, and one player, the caller, would tell the DM. Presumably, the caller only knew because the caller themselves talked to all the other players. So I always felt like that's kind of like a weird middleman. Like, first of all, you're all at the same table. Surely the DM can hear you all. So why have this one official speaker for the party? Although I can also see the value of it is that once the caller says it, it's official. So if you're talking a lot of strange half-baked plans or something like that, none of them become the official action until you agree on it and then the caller relays it to the DM. I have never played with a caller. Maybe you have if you're super old school, um, you know. I I would try it, but I imagine it's the kind of thing that I would forget to do. So anyways, I'm going to be reading out uh, the, the parts prefaced by referee and caller. Referee steps down to the east. Caller, we're going down. Referee, 10 feet, 20 feet, 30 feet. A 10-foot square landing steps down to the north and curving down southeast. Now, what we notice with even these first three lines of dialogue is there is no evocative description at all. The referee is just giving functional and perfunctory descriptions of the layout of the dungeon. I mean, in, in one way, this is to facilitate the other uh, party role, the mapper. Um, Early uh, games of D&D did not have uh, tiles or battle mats and miniatures. What you had instead was you had one, pe one player with a book of graph paper and a pencil. And uh, each square in the graph paper represented 10 feet square. And the, the referee would describe where they are and the mapper would try to draw it out making a record of the places they explored. And of course, uh, old school dungeons had a lot of weird things like teleportation traps and stuff where they would teleport you to a different part of the dungeon um, without you knowing it and stuff like that. Th things to trick the players to and make the mapper mess up their map, which you don't really do as much when you're just drawing it out on a battle map. Because um, it would involve you drawing the wrong map on purpose and then having to erase it and draw it again and stuff like that. So, um, but yeah, here we see the referee just 
giving the layout so the mapper can map it. They're not describing smells, how dark it is. There's no, you know, bones of humanoids scattered on the floor. There's no sounds of rats going through rat holes or cobwebs hanging from the ceiling or uh, a suspicious dripping sound coming from far away. So uh, that none of that evocative, descriptive flavor is, is here at all. Continuing with the scene, the caller says, Take those to the southeast. Referee. Ten feet, and the steps curve more to the south. Twenty feet. Steps end, and you are on a ten-foot-wide passage which runs east, southeast, and west. There is a door to your left across the passage on a northwest wall. Caller. Listen at the door. Three of us. Um, I'm going to stop again here. The reason that the caller specifies three of them is because the rules of the original edition of Dungeons & Dragons specify that a maximum of three players can listen at a door at once. Uh, you rolled this listen check on AD6, um, and basically each character had a one in six chance of hearing noise if there was any noise to be heard. Um, which means that you you hear something on a result of one. That's not great odds, but if three people are doing it, it's three chances. Um, if one of you was an elf, you'd have a two and six chance. And notice the caller doesn't specify that the elf is one listening. My assumption this far would be that the party doesn't include an elf otherwise, an astute caller would definitely say, it, the elf is one of the ones listening. Anyways, continuing, the referee, after rolling three dice, you hear nothing. Then we get in parentheses or round brackets. At this time, a check for wandering monsters is also made. That check is also done on a d6, by the way. Caller, ignore the door and proceed along the corridor southeastwards. So obviously, they're not going to go into empty rooms. Um, that's just going to waste their time. Referee, 10 feet, 20 feet, 30 feet, 40 feet, 50 feet. Four-way, northwest, northeast, south, and southwest. The south passage is 20 feet wide. That's an important detail because standard passages in these old-school dungeons are only 10 feet wide, so there's an extra-wide passage to the south. And that detail is not lost on the party because the caller immediately says, Go south. Referee, 10 to 70 feet. Passage continues. Doors east and west. So uh, clearly either the referee got sick of writing out or reading out each 10-foot mark or Gary Gygax got sick of writing it out because it just goes 10 to 70 feet. Um, the passage doesn't end there, but there are doors to the east and west. Caller, listen at the east door. Notice that this time they don't specify how many people are listening. But the referee, after the appropriate check, you hear shuffling. The caller, two of us, and in parentheses it says specifying which two. So this scene isn't going to tell us the names of the players in this party. Um, it's just going to say the caller specified which two, which two PCs are going to throw their weight against the door to open it. All will be ready for combat. So there's two details here. Uh, just like the rules specify that a maximum of three 
PCs can listen at the door at any one time. The, uh, the rules also say that a maximum of three people can throw their weight against the door to force open a stuck door at any one time. There weren't, all, there weren't as many locked doors in original D&D because there didn't used to be a thief class and therefore there wasn't anybody who could pick locks. But most doors were presumed to be stuck shut and you'd have to give them a good push or knock or something like that to open them up. That was rolled on a D6 as well. Um, the standard chance was actually two and six. And if you had high strength, you might get three and six. And if you had low strength, it might be only one and six. But again, having more people do it at once increases your chances. However, the rules specifically say, state that if three people throw their weight against the door to open it and they succeed, then they all tumble into the next room, land on the floor, and if there are any monsters inside, the monsters get the jump on them. So I think that's why the caller specified only two. Because presumably then, if only two people do it, that doesn't happen. So the referee, after rolling two dice, the door opens. You can't be surprised, but the monsters, you see a half a dozen gnolls, can be. And then in parentheses here a check for surprises made melee conducted and so on now notice here the combat is completely skipped um, we've been going through this as i said uh perfunctory and flareless description of the layout of a dungeon with the the actions the party actions and their res the resolution being given in the blandest and most mechanical language and we're finally going to see some action. They're going to fight six gnolls. We don't even know how many people are in this party. And no, they skip ahead to it. Now, why would they do that? One thing is the original rules for Dungeons and Dragons still seem to assume that you were going to be using a game called Chainmail, Gary Gygax's earlier game, to use combat resolution. Um, I don't have time to go into chain mail right now um but basically you roll 2d6 to see if you hit the the rules do give what is called the alternative combat system which is where you roll the d20 and try to roll high um that's basically the the earliest version of the same combat resolution method that DD uses to this very day it's changed very little in uh 40 plus years um, but I suppose one reason that they're not going into combat is because they're not going to show you which combat system you should be using the original chainmail one that they seem to prefer or the alternative combat system that won out in the end. We'll never know really how they resolved this combat. We also don't know if there were any casualties, um, so the, we just go right back to the caller interacting with the referee. So the caller. Okay, what does the room look like? We're examining the walls, ceiling, floor, and contents of the room itself. Again, he's being very specific because if, if this referee represents Gary Gygax himself, you can bet your ass there's going to be something like green slime on the ceiling or something like that. The referee, after checking to see if dwarves and or elves are in the party, and the reason he needs to do that is because 
elves have a better chance to spot secret doors, and uh, dwarves have a better chance to spot stone constructions and things like that. So, like, if the if the secret door is made of stone, they can maybe spot that. The room is a truncated pyramid. The east wall is the truncated part, directly opposite the door you entered. It is ten feet long, with another door in it. The walls connecting it to the west wall, the place you entered, are each about 35 feet long. The west wall, which is where you entered, is 30 feet long, with the door in the middle of the wall. The elf has noted that there seems to be a hollow spot near the east end of the southeast wall. Mm -hmm. The floor and ceiling seem to have nothing unusual. The room contains the bodies of the gnolls, a pile of refuse in the north corner of the west wall, and two trunks along the wall opposite the one which along the wall opposite the one which sounds hollow. So uh, there is an elf in this party, and it's amazing that this otherwise thorough caller didn't specify that the elf was one of the ones listening at the door earlier. In the meantime, the caller says, the elf will check out the hollow sound. One of us will sort through the refuse. Each trunk will be opened by one of us and the remaining two, naming exactly who this is, will each guard a door listening to get an advance warning if anything approaches. So again, very thorough. Um, this sounds like a player who's been screwed before. Another check, referee, another check on the hollow sound reveals a secret door which opens onto a flight of stairs down to the south. The refuse is nothing but sticks, bones, offal, and old clothes. One chest is empty, the other had a poison needle on the lock. And then in round brackets or parentheses, here a check to see if the character opening it makes his saving throw for poison. And by the way, if he didn't, he'd be dead. Uh, we don't see what the result of this is, but the referee doesn't tell anybody that they're dead, so I guess he made a save. The chest with the poison needle is full of copper pieces. Appears to be about 2,000 of them. Oh boy, 20 gold pieces. That's a hell of a lot of treasure. The caller, empty out all of the copper pieces and check the trunk for secret drawers or a false bottom and do the same with the empty one. Also, do there seem to be any old boots or cloaks among the old clothes in the rubbish pile? When I first read this, this is where I got really impressed by this fictitious caller because uh, I did not catch that detail. I read the old clothes as well, and I was just going to dismiss it, but not this person. And here we have the referee, and in parentheses it says, Cursing the thoroughness of the caller. The seemingly empty trunk has a false bottom. In it, you have found an onyx case with a jeweled necklace therein. The case appears to be worth about a thousand, and the necklace about five thousand gold pieces. Amidst the litter, the searcher has located a pair of old boots, but there is nothing like a cloak there. So, uh, this, this bit always struck me, that in the example of play which is presumably fictional, although at this point I began to wonder if it was based on something that actually happened in Gary's home table. I uh, even wonder if this caller is based on the famous Rob Coombs, uh, the editor of the Greyhawk supplement, um, as well as many other classic D&D &D, uh, content from the old school days. A uh, friend of Gary Gygax's and one of the uh, one of his original game, yeah, part of his original gaming group. 
So, caller, the boots will be tried on now to see if they will allow silent movement. We can use a set of elven boots. I will secure the case and necklace in my backpack, while the others will, will by turn, fill their packs with coppers. Referee, this will require four turns. Uh, there's actually a semicolon between the word require and the word for, and I don't know if that's a typo, because all three of these booklets are full of typos, or if that's meant to be the a pause while the referee calculates how many turns. Um, then we go into more parentheses, and we read, Ho checks for monsters wandering in, and on the fourth try, one is indicated. However, as there was a listener at the door that is approaching, he also checks to see if it is detected, allowing a good probability that it will be heard. So again, speaking of typos, notice that he is spelled as ho at the beginning of this uh, parenthetical uh, section. So with the parentheses over, the referee continues, As you complete your loading, the dwarf at the west door detects heavy footsteps approaching. The boots, by the way, are elven type. The caller. Excellent! Our magic user will cast a hold portal on the west door while the elf opens the secret one. We will then all beat a hasty retreat down the stairs to the south. Onward, friends, to more and bigger loot. Uh, and I don't know if he was speaking in character or if he's just a bit of a dork. Um, the scene concludes with uh, one final paragraph. With appropriate variations for ability to detect and or see what is around them, the adventure will continue in this manner until the party leaves the dungeons or are killed therein. So notice that they do allow for the possibility that the entire party might die and that that will be the end of their adventure. But the first possibility they mention is that they will just get tired of being in the dungeon and walk out with whatever treasure they've got so far. So what can we learn about how original Dungeons and Dragons was imagined to be played by Gary Gygax? Uh, one is... It's a purely dungeon-crawling game, and I would like to do some episodes um, on the history of each edition and the flavor of each edition, um, starting with, with the, the, this very first edition, the, the so-called Three Little Brown Booklets. But it's the game was, you rolled up a character, you went down in the dungeon, and you stayed there until you'd had enough and had to go back to town to rest, or until you died. And then the next day, you do it again. Almost like almost like the dungeon is the factory where you work. You know, every what are you going to do today? We're going down into the dungeon. Um, there, there's no description of, like, interaction with NPCs. There's no description of traveling over land. And, you know, these examples of play are always very small very short and they always kind of uh show you the most common type of interaction but you know that's what the most common type of interaction is it's painstakingly crawling through the dungeon while somebody tries to keep an accurate map and the other person tells the referee what you're going to be doing and nobody is really speaking in character apart from possibly that very last sentence 
I mean, maybe the caller was speaking in character to the other characters. Maybe the caller was actually speaking to the other players. You know, e either one would make sense. The referee was certainly never speaking in any kind of character, and he wasn't using any sort of descriptive language, the kind that creates images in your mind. So that doesn't seem to be part of this game. Um, it's, it's probably more a game than a story. Um, the, the, the conflict between whether D&D &D is a story first and a game second or vice versa is, you know, one that has raged for throughout the game's history. And again, like at different parts of the game's history, maybe it's been more story or maybe it's been more game. I think original Dungeons and Dragons, it's definitely a game there. Everything is done with kind of mechanical precision and without any real frills. Maybe the combat was a little bit more exciting, but we'll never know because they didn't put that in the uh, the example of play. So uh, that's probably about all I have to say about this particular example of play. And next time, I'm going to be going forward in history to the Holmes Basic Boxed Set, which includes an all-new example of play. And we'll talk about, uh, we'll read through that one, and we'll talk about how different the experience uh, they're, they're anticipating um, is from this one. And then we'll go from there. Um, until then, um, stay safe, uh, keep playing D&D. &D. And listen to goth music. Sorry, I hadn't thought of a, a new closing line for my revamped podcast. Thanks for listening. I hope you like what you heard. I don't have a Patreon, and I don't want your money. But please, come again and tell a friend.